Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Thank you for joining me for episode two of Beyond Consultation. You are going to love this episode. Our guest today was recently featured alongside Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern for Vision Week 2020 in New Zealand. She knows all about moving collaboration beyond a buzzword and she's even writing her first book on that topic at the moment. So I'm really excited to welcome Nazan and Jenkin to the show. You'll hear about Nazanin's story as a Persian-born New Zealander with a British accent. You'll learn about some steps you can take to build your collaboration muscles. We'll talk about why most collaboration is doomed to fail and actually what you can do to prevent that. And we go into some really interesting ground on why it's important to acknowledge the past when you're envisioning and trying to create a new future. And we're going to start today's episode with Nazanin introducing herself through her pepiha, her Māori introduction. Don't worry if you don't speak or understand much te reo Māori. The pepiha is about 30 seconds long, so just sit back, relax, and enjoy the beauty of a different language. Okay, over to you Nazanin. Namihi, namihi nui, namihi nui, namihi nui, he mihi mahana ki a koutou. No irana o kutipuna i wehe toku whānua i te tau 1979, nā te huringa irana te tāke. Ko Nazarene Jenkin, toku taku ingwa. Ko Naz o Nazi te ingwa poto e kie mai e te whānu. Nō reira, nā mihi, nā mihi, nā mihi koto. Nā no, mihi, kia koe Nazi. Thank you for your mihi. And yeah, for those who don't know you, you're Persian by descent, but you've got a British accent. How did we end up with you and your skills here in little New Zealand? Okay, so I am Persian by descent and a diaspora by circumstance. So the Iranian Revolution happened in 1979. The British accent came because when I was seven, my sisters and I went to boarding school in the UK and I stayed my whole secondary and tertiary education was in the UK. Then I met and married uh, Pakiha Kiwi, Tim, (laughs) and Kiwi's always boomerang. Sometimes it just takes a bit longer. (laughs) So we had the first 10 years of married life in the UK, and then we came, uh, Tim returned home, and we arrived with him. Christmas Eve 1999. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're going to immigrate, do it yeah. in style, just on the brink of the millennium. So we've been in Wellington since then. 
<laughs> Fantastic story and a similar one to my parents, actually. My dad is a New Zealander and he went to South Africa for a three-week holiday and came back three years later with a wife and, and a kid, which was my older brother. So, yeah, awesome. And Nazi, you, yeah, I was really keen to have you on the podcast because you've got a really interesting range of past work experiences in local government, central government, infrastructure projects, social development projects. But now you're focusing on cross-sector collaboration. What led you to focus on that? It's been a bit of a journey, as most people's careers are, you know, as you're discovering yourself. So my first career was engineering. I qualified as a chemical engineer, and some people would call it process engineering. Mm. And... um, I worked as an engineer, as an on-site engineer, for about a decade. Um, And I did collaboration, but we never called it that. You know, we didn't have a name for it. And we tried to take an ecosystem approach as to what we were doing without being able to name it. So my first job was with Southampton City Council and I was in charge of the operations program. And I tried to approach it a little bit differently. So just because I had a great manager who was very empowering and he let me. So I was in charge of subways, let's say subways. And what I knew in Southampton at the time was the rape rate was quite high in the subways. It was um, in the early 80s, so I'm old. And so this was this bothered me as a young woman, you know, it bothered me. And it wasn't just, so it became a bit of a project for me. It wasn't just about cleaning the subways and delivering an operational program that cleaned and maintained the subways. Mm. It was about, it became a bigger project for me. So I uh, developed a working group and we included the police and various stakeholders across the city. And um, the college, the most creative college students uh, from the arts college, from the local arts college, and we redesigned many of the city's subways. We included an operational maintenance program around that, a cleaning and a hygiene program. We put the art college kids, we put a caravan up on site for them over the summer holidays, and they designed and drew murals through the subways for us, and we put protective stuff over them. This stuff's been done quite a lot now, but... Mm. We pioneered it, really, and we put polymirrors, the first polymirrors in Southampton City. So if you were walking through the subway, you had a view around the corner because it was before mobile phones or anything like that. So the long and the short of it was we developed a really great operational program for the subways, which the people that were delivering it were much happier doing and it worked. Uh, the subway stayed cleaner. They were visually really enhancing. But the big positive spin-off was the rape rate went down. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, so the whole social impact on the society we were living in was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And it was exactly what we wanted. And it was based around a maintenance program 
an operational maintenance program, an infrastructure thing. And things became about people and the people who service them, the people who deliver them, the people who use them. So that's how it started. It started with doing it from my gut 20 odd years ago and then thinking, what am I doing? You know, what's it called? <laughs> what am I actually doing? And uh, yeah, the, the program that we developed at that time was so successful that the region adopted it. Mm. So, and it fed into other programs. But yeah, I, so how did I start doing it? I just started doing it because I cared about people. I cared about the environment I was living in. And I understood infrastructure a little bit. So we worked together and we came up with some answers that I could never have done on my own. Yeah, you know? yeah. And just never, ever, ever could I have figured all of that out on my own. So, and it happened because the, my managers allowed me to try new things. They allowed you to try new things and by the sounds of it, you were curious as well and you just followed your nose to different people who might have had an impact and um, were able to ask different questions that maybe an engineer might not usually ask? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> it just happened. You know, we had conversations and um, it evolved and it was organic and it was a long time afterwards that I was able to say, to name what we did. Yeah. We at the time we just did it. And I think some of the best capabilities are drawn out of the best of who we are. And we might not be able to understand them, we might not be able to name them, but over time we learn to do that. We learn to with help, with help and support, yeah. we learn to understand. So it's important, I think, when you do good work and you get good results to assess, to take time to reflect and say, what is it that we did? Why did it work? Why, mm. What bits didn't work? What would we do again and what wouldn't we do again? So, yeah. And that's, that's certainly one of the things I've found with cross-sector collaboration. It's not something that you go to school and your teacher says, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I say, oh, I want to be a cross-sector collaborator. That's not really this kind of defined profession or career. So how did you sort of move from, you know, dipping your toes in on this one project and not really quite knowing what it was that you were doing or that there might even be a name for it to where you are now where, um, you know, you're one of New Zealand's thought leaders and, and how to make this stuff actually work? Like what were some of the markers along the way that really helped you in that journey? Well, that's humbling that you call me one of New Zealand's thought leaders. So I think, you know, I'm still learning and evolving. So we talked before we started that I actually ended up taking, after that project, there were other projects, similar projects. So I did for Birmingham City afterwards. So I moved across the local governments in the UK. For Birmingham City, I did uh, what we called drainage area designs, which was a 10-year strategic plan of the catchment area. So we took a catchment and we considered the infrastructure of the catchment, but across the potential changing demography and uh, economics, which essentially 
is the full well-beings approach mm. um, of local government now and the living standards approach. So we were doing that a, a long time ago and we were looking at sections of our city so that the significantly higher population than New Zealand, obviously, and saying what's involved. So it just evolved. My, my work and my interests evolved. And um, when I returned to paid work across the world in New Zealand, I also started working for local government and doing 10-year plannings, had opportunity again to collaborate with the community to assess what was needed. Then I did an MBA. I did an MBA in 2014 with Messi. And I think that was really when I started naming what I did. Right. Because you you had to dive deep into it and, and research it and, and put some theory behind what you'd been doing. Yeah, I had to choose a research project. And I, had to, I wanted to think quite carefully about what, did I do and what mattered and what was important to me. And my research was an analysis of impediments to collaboration in the New Zealand public sector. Mm. That that was the research. And that drew really wide interest. Uh, When I did the research, I ring-fenced it for the purposes of that work to central government, local government and NGOs. And I didn't include the community sector and that work, but I I recognised that that was a limitation of the research because it wasn't a PhD. (laughs) (laughs) If I did a PhD, I would take it the next stage further. Yeah, Yeah, so that was really, so it was many, many years later that I was able to name it. And prior to doing the research in New Zealand, I did some other collaboration projects here, both in central government and local government. Then I was able to name it and I was able to, and now I'm continuing to unpack the parts of it that are important. So to support others to learn how to do it. Mm. And so, yeah, yeah, it definitely makes sense. And it's what about 10 years since you wrote that research do you feel like those barriers that you identified then still exist now? Four years. Four years. Two thousand and sixteen. Oh, so two thousand and sixteen, it was published. Yeah. <laughs> so it's still quite. So things have moved quite fast, but that's also a reflection of how I published my research in two thousand and sixteen. IPANS published it before I graduated. As, and the document, so the summary version was working towards working together. Mm. And that's on the homepage of my website, the PDF. People can just download that. And here we are, not even fully t- four years later, and the interest and the momentum has grown exponentially. Mm. Because during the intervening period, we've had quite significant legislative changes both for central and local government. And there is an appetite for doing things differently Uh, and a recognition that we are a small country with limited resources and small populations. So a different way of working requires a new capability too.
And Nazi, you were talk about being humbled. You were recently featured for Vision Week New Zealand. So you put forward a pitch for what you thought um, might be a vision for Aotearoa New Zealand and, and that was accepted and, and shared on the last day of Vision Week New Zealand. Can you tell us more about that? Well, that was a little unexpected. (laughs) I'm blaming Paul Blair for that. (laughs) So, bless him. So, during lockdown, um, like many people who work like I do, as a consultant and a facilitator, facilitator, thought leader, independent person, the workshops that I had scheduled for May were all face-to-face, often with community groups, so they all got cancelled. Yeah. Yeah. So because nobody was moving anywhere and all the people that I was working with were a little bit busy serving their communities as uh, essential workers, developing, you know, they were doing, (laughs) they were busy doing. So I used it as an opportunity to think and I used that time as an opportunity to author I had a moment of confidence as I was reading an apolitical article, you know, as you do, on at my desk, and I thought, mm, I like that article, but I think I could write something better. So I did in a moment of uh, uh, lunacy, I think, uh, did a pitch to the editor, who is absolutely fabulous, I have to say, and he responded and said, I like your pitch, let's work on something. So... That was my lockdown project. I wrote, uh, what did we call it? Collaboration from buzzword to reality. And Andes, who's the apolitical editor who I have never met and have no face for, but who wonderfully through emails steered me to a better piece of work. And uh, we published on the 2nd of June. Um, so when Paul Blair announced Vision Week New Zealand, I said, oh, I've got this article. Might it be of interest? And he said, would you like to do a video to support it? And so that's how that evolved, you know, just evolving. That's how we work in New Zealand. We have conversations and it's really at any point in time, it's your decision whether you pick it up or whether you don't. So, yep, so I did it and it got accepted and they said they would use 30 seconds of it, which felt like a real coup. You know, it was really exciting. And um, I was chuffed about that. And if you watched any of Vision Week during the five days, all the 30-second snippets were at the beginning of the sessions. So when I watched the last day and I wasn't at the beginning of the session, I thought, oh, clearly they didn't use it. (laughs) (laughs) So we were an hour into the final day of Vision Week and I had not appeared and I emailed the producer. I said, oh, so could you not use it? Was it no good? (laughs) And she, bless her, emailed straight back and said, keep watching, you're closing the conference. So I actually didn't know that that was what was going to happen until it happened. (laughs) So it was incredibly humbling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wrote on uh, LinkedIn, I had an OMG moment. It literally was. I was sitting there going, did that happen? Did that really happen? Did they do that? So... So I think what that tells me is 
people are ready for this conversation. I think it's the right time to have the to do the work that you and Call and I and people like us are doing and saying, let's work together, let's collaborate, let's learn how to do it better. Let's and I think the best thing we can do is provide spaces and environments where people feel safe to have that um, discourse of ideas and conversations and the openness that's Mm. needed around that. So ultimately, that's what we're doing. We're just providing the spaces. Mm. Yeah, we, we talk about the need for safety and the need for structure when you're trying to collaborate and those two things can really help when you're yeah trying to move it beyond a buzzword but as you say and and one of the things i loved in your article uh, was you said collaboration is not always appropriate uh, or you know it's hard it's hard work so what do you say to um, organizations who are throwing around this buzzword of collaboration yeah, yeah. What advice do you give them about where to focus their attention? So my observation would be that collaboration, because it takes effort and investment, is best suited to the systemic opportunity, to the big complex issues. Along the pathway to working on those, smaller collaborations which some would call coordination or communication or something like that. Information sharing maybe happened. But when I did my research, one of the most uh, surprising themes that came out was participants. And it came out in many workshops and individual conversations. Participants talked about real collaboration and false collaboration. And I wrote in my research... Well, we didn't expect that one. (laughs) Didn't expect people to talk about real and false. And so we tried to unpack that. And what I think they were talking about was these conversations or meetings or roundtable, regular, you know, let's meet once a month type Mm. thing, which people call collaboration, but actually they weren't collaborating. They Mm. weren't really working effectively with one agenda. With a shared agenda. And a My organization's agenda. doing this. Did you know about it? Oh, no, you didn't? Okay. Well, now you know. Sweet. I'm going to go back to my job now. Yeah. yeah. I do my thing. You do your thing. But every month we tell each other what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we unpacked when we looked at the recordings was that's what people were calling false collaborations. Right. Uh, whereas real collaborations were those opportunities. Interestingly, you know, we talked about things evolving into an organisational perspective. When one of the questions I had in my research was, what's your best experience of collaboration? You know, people often talked about their personal experiences. They talked about developing the the sports roster or uh, making sure there were enough Um, oranges every week for the kids Mm. or doing the t-shirt laundry roster uh, or the men's group that they were part of and preparing the kai or the drinks for that so what what I learned was it was entirely a personal thing 
you know, collaboration for people was at quite a personal level. It was about the stuff that mattered to them mm. and that was important to them. And so that's what we have to draw on. That's what people know and understand as collaboration. And then there was that how much of who I am do I bring into the workplace and where is that boundary and where's that balance and how do I utilise that? So those are the stuff that sat around it as mm. we did the research and as I worked with people that I understood. So it's all about whakapanongatonga. It's all about people. Mm. Uh, it's all about relationships and people. And I like Donella H. Meadows' work. You know, she talks about systems being about relationships. Mm. So every part of the system, and that makes sense in our context and here in New Zealand, you know, we understand that thinking. But it's about the relationships between the parts. I mean, if we think of the body, she says, this is an example she uses, if we take the body, we most of us understand that our body is a system in its mm. own way, right? If the liver is designed to get rid of the toxins, then the lung doesn't have to do that job. <laughs> when the lung tries to do that job, if it ever does, I don't know, I'm not a medic, uh, <laughs> then there's a problem, hey. Mm. so And if the liver doesn't do its job properly, then there's a problem. You know, my body isn't working right. So each part has a job and there's a relationship between the parts. Mm. And that makes the system work well together. And there is a collaboration between all the little bits to make it work. Mm. And so that metaphor for you is helpful when you're thinking through, you know, what are those particular challenges that an organisation might want to actually take a collaborative approach to? Um, how, how does that metaphor fit within that? Well, all the parts of an organisation impact each other and the parts outside the organisation that the organisation interacts with mm. impact that organisation and the people, you know. So it's complex and it's adaptive, it's a complex adaptive system, it's changing all the time and when you or I go in to help them, we've impacted the thing just by walking in. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's already going to affect it. So... We may yearn to oversimplify it and turn it into a linear relationship, but mm. it's not. That's not going to work mm. because it's not a linear relationship. You know, we've moved. It's not a manufacturing line yeah. when you're talking about relationships of complex dynamics. Mm. And I'm glad you mentioned Donatella H. Meadows' work. I found her um, writing really helpful personally and one of the things I remember from it was the, reading this really long article and it got to the end of it and kind of the punchline was you know if you want to change a system the best place to start is with how you turn up into that system yeah. um, because yeah just by stepping into something you have an influence even if you're not really thinking about it so one of the things you do, you run Collaboration 101 workshops and helping people to build their collaboration muscles. What kind of stuff do you teach people in that? So let's, let's talk about a little bit about the collaboration muscle. So I think the first important thing is recognising that collaboration is a standalone skill set. So just because you like to work with people and just because you're naturally a relationship type person and you're a good networker, 
that doesn't mean you know how to do collaboration mm. in business context because that's actually far more complex. So the first point is to recognize that collaboration is a standalone skill set and it's a muscle that we need to develop across the organization and particularly as a leadership muscle. Now, within a collaboration context, we would say that leaders can be anywhere. Mm. You know, leadership is not about hierarchy. It's about whoever rises up to be the leader. It's a dance and collaborative leadership is a dance and a riff between uh, leading and following, you know, it's constantly. So what do I do in my workshops? We talk about that. We unpack why it's a standalone skill set. And then we talk about the elements of building the muscle. So we talk about the why of collaboration, the what of collaboration, and the how of collaboration. So, you know, that goes back to where we started the conversation of the why, you know, do do you have a shared agenda? Is it worth the investment Mm. to collaborate in the full sense of the word or real collaboration? Or whatever, you know, the language doesn't matter so much as the deeper understanding behind it. And are we in agreement? And then we work through, you know, who needs to be there and how long do they need to be there? And what are the strengths of the individuals at the table and what are they going to contribute? And how is that going to complement the whole? And how do we assess if that needs to change? Because it's going to change what I contribute and what you contribute might need to change as things evolve. And then we talk about um, that's the what and the how. So the what and the how. So, you know, so just building capability. So we're doing some uh, short learning bites in July. Mm. And really they're short learning bites is to give people a taster and get to an understanding that this is this is a standalone skill set. So that's all we do in the learning bites really. And these are some ideas around how you could do it. And then in the full day masterclasses, we're going a level deeper and we're looking at the elements of the capabilities. Um, so the, I've identified a number of areas. So one of the most important ones is listening, hmm. which I'm not doing in this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a So, um, yeah, but, you know, a big part of collaboration is about listening and how we listen. Mm. And what I heard you sort of say in there, which I found really empowering, was, you know, anybody can step up to the plate of um, collaborative leadership. Yeah. At the same time, I, I've had experiences where, you know, you have this intention as a, an advisor in a department, uh, perhaps, and... You know, you can feel quite isolated within that context as well if you're trying to step into collaborative le- leadership. So, you know, are there other sort of enablers that need to be going on to um, help an individual along on that journey? So I would agree with the feeling isolated bit. Mm. And sometimes if you're pioneering, well, generally, if you're pioneering anything, Uh, it can feel a little bit lonely and isolating. You know, it's not uncommon for great leaders to share stories of those moments Mm -hmm. while feeling very isolated and alone. I don't think that's an uncommon experience of the journey in any 
any arena of pioneering an idea mm. uh, um, or a way of working. And in terms of the wider context of how do we allow it, I think the most important thing is, as we've already talked about, is enabling those safe, open spaces for concourse. And I talk a lot about allowing all the voices to be heard. So if we're looking at a specific opportunity or issue, really giving space and permission for all those that have skin in the game to have their voices heard. My experience, and I draw on my own experience as a Persian, you know, and the traditions of the Rumi Sufi tea houses, is even if people are disagreed, if they've had the opportunity to share their ideas and their voices, they, in the end, they are more comfortable with what the outcome is. Mm. And that makes a difference. Is that your experience? Yeah, it certainly is. Sometimes I talk about uh, constructive tension or constructive yeah. conflict. And if you don't have that, actually, for me, that's a red flag that you probably haven't got to the real um, nub, the real root of what you're talking about. So yeah, you kind of have to work through that um, in order to get to something good on the other side. Yeah. We were talking with my 19-year-old at dinner last night and we were talking about the concept of groupthink. I mean, you know, it's can feel very comfortable to surround yourself with like-minded people. Mm. and um, But it's also very dangerous if you never test your ideas. And um, so I think it's a really important part of collaboration to have that shared discourse and conversation, that tension, that constructive conflict, mm. you know. So in in the spirit of monarchy tonga, respect and generosity. So mm. just because you and I might be disagreed, it, it doesn't make me right or you right or me wrong or you wrong, you know. Mm. It's just we have a different perspective at this point in time. Mm but I can respect your perspective. And that's not easy to do. And that's, you, that is a, that's a built muscle. Mm. You build that muscle, that muscle of generosity and respect is something I think we build. Is this making any sense to you, Paul? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, and I think just as, you know, if you uh, keep applying that metaphor, just as... Um, with your physical body, you can be strong one year and, and um, weaker the next. Uh, yeah, so you've got to keep working at it. Yeah. And you get better at it. You know, another metaphor that I think about a lot in terms of doing collaboration, and it would probably be just as true for many other things, is um, a ship. You know, when we start cooking, we rely on those recipe books, you know, when mm. we start learning. And uh, as the years go on, I rely less on the recipe books and use them sometimes as a guideline or an idea. But I adapt and adjust to what I've got in the pantry or what I've got in the house. Mm. Certainly during lockdown, we all did that. Mm. And... Um, then after a while, you get you get a bit stale, and you have the same ten recipes that you're doing off by heart. So you need to go back to the recipe book again. 
you have to get some inspiration from yeah. somewhere or go out and eat and get an idea from someone else. But definitely you need to find inspiration. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I find one of the most valuable things as a facilitator is to go and be a participant in other people's workshops and remind myself, oh, yeah, that's that's right. It's really awkward at the start as a participant. Oh, uh, yeah, and, yeah, you remember those things that people are going through. <laughs> I mean, I think I've really enjoyed this period as we've been through the pandemic where people have been so wonderfully generous yeah. with... Uh, facilitating international conversations and I've exposed myself to them and learned so much around that that's been you know we have an opportunity to learn from each other just doing this now you're in Nelson and I'm in Wellington and it's comfortable and it's easy hey yeah yeah and might not have attempted something like this six months ago so yeah and we're speaking like old friends. And actually, for the record, we've never fa- met face to face. No, no. All our meetings to this point have been like this. <laughs> That's true. But we sort of feel as though we know each other quite well. Hey? Yeah, yeah. We had that experience recently with our business mentor um, for Business Lab, and yeah, we'd had half a dozen meetings with her, and finally met with her in person, and it was sort of like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, and she she looked quite different in in real life to how you do on the screen. <laughs> but (laughs) was the same person. Hey, look, uh, Nazi, there's one last thing I kind of want to talk to you about, which is your book. So you're currently writing a book, which you have tentatively titled Collaboration Insights, a guide for successful collaborations and partnerships. How's it coming along? Uh, Slower than I hoped, but it is coming along. And essentially, it's going to work on the lines of the masterclasses, you know, the why, what, how of collaboration and what's the risk if we don't do it, if we don't work work collaboratively. So that's where I'm working at. Uh, So I have a structure. I've been blogging. So uh, I've got my uh, musings written um, I did a seven-part collaboration insight series and anyone can access that. They're under musings on my website. And I've got my research. So we've got some uh, context around it. So, yes, yeah, so hopefully by the end of 2020, I'll have some of that published. And we are, it'll be around thinking, what's your why of collaboration? What's the mind shift you need? What's your, what's the history behind, you know, how we have worked as a people and in the public sector in New Zealand, the old brackets, new public management Mm. guided us in a very particular way of working, which essentially was a competitive approach to working. And now we're having to rethink and relearn how we problem frame. So if we are rewarded and incentivized to find solutions, we don't feel so safe to say, I don't know, and I need to ask someone else, and I need to collaborate. Uh, We, you know, it's beyond I, and it's about we. Mm. So the environments we work in determine how we work and the amount of time we spend at the early stages. One of the things with collaboration is 
you need to spend a lot more time identifying why you're together, what's your shared agenda. And once you've got that bit right, like a building, you know, the foundations are right, the building will go higher. The deeper the foundations, the stronger the foundations, the higher the building can go. If we don't take the time to build the right right foundations, then we have issues down the road. Mm. And that first part is difficult to quantify for other people. Those of us that are part of it, deeply inside of us, see the change. Mm. And we experience that, you know. I think the Greeks say it's... um, Genosco, you know, that experiential knowing. So uh, there is a knowing and there's an experiential knowing. But actually being able to put numbers around that or measures around that is hard. Mm. So that's why we need leaders that allow that openness and that discourse. Because if we get that first bit right and spend the time there, then we can move forward. And we move forward a lot faster. You know, so you actually get the results. Uh, if you don't spend that first upfront time there, then you do. You appear to move forward fast, but actually often it all falls apart and mm-hmm. collapses and you don't get the outcomes that you're looking for. Turning things around is about turning things around where we spend our energy and our space. And then I talk about collaborative skills and behaviours, definitely collaborative leadership because it's a new way of leading. And collaborative cultures and the mind shift we need around those culture shifts. And then we go on to talk about collective impact and shared value and how you can fill your own kitty to be able to deliver that. Mm -hmm. So it's coming along, Paul, this book. (laughs) It would always be nice to have things a lot faster, you know. I mean, I guess it teaches me about collaboration, doesn't it? Yeah, you've you've just been talking about slowing down to speed up. So so there you go. I like that. Slowing down to speed up. There you go. That's what we have to do. I, I heard that um you as you were talking, I was um thinking a little bit about a recent project we've been working on with the council around heritage, which, you know, when I started working on the project that immediately made me think of um buildings and colonial heritage. We've been working a lot with local iwi who don't talk about heritage. They talk about taonga tukuiho, and taonga is precious things, both physical and not and metaphysical. And tukuiho sort of means hand, handed down to you, so inherited. And anyway, so so we had this this sort of process where designed, and we got got most of the way through that, and we had to completely rethink things. And, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, having to pause, having to slow down. And someone in one of the leadership groups said, this isn't slowing down. This is speeding up in the right direction. So you're actually putting more time and effort and energy into creating that shared agenda from the outset. And it was nice to have someone sort of reframe your own language for you and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm just thinking of... Mari Fakatoki, as you were talking, and I want to look it up mm. um, so I say it correctly. Looking back in order to move forward. <laughs> Perfect. That's uh... and that's what we need to do. So we need to 
acknowledge and appreciate uh, where we've come from, our ancestries and what they've taught us, but be totally cognizant that what we do now will impact the generations ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And that's why collaboration is so important because we are respecting the past and the future in the present. Nazi, that's a perfect way to end the podcast episode, I think. So, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time. And yeah, for people who are keen to learn more about you, I'll share links to your website and um, several of the things you've mentioned in today's show. Um, yeah, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Ngā mihi mō te whakarongo.